Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Once again, for uh, tuning in to the Explaining History podcast, and today I want to talk about the uh, early anti-Soviet operations of the CIA um, after the Second World War. I'll be looking uh, a little bit at Tim Viner's uh, excellent book, Legacy of Ashes, and a few of the primary sources um, to go with that. Um, the point that Tim Viner makes um, in the book which I think is uh, it's an obvious one, but it's an interesting one nonetheless, was that during the Second World War, the USA found common cause, not just with the Soviet Union, but with other uh, communist um, insurgency uh, groups across Europe, um, and uh, who would later be form the new communist governments. They found common cause with them against fascism. And later after the Second World War, found common cause with fascists uh, against the Soviet Union. And the way in which that happened was through the uh, embryonic uh, CIA. Now, if you remember a previous podcast I did on this subject uh, about Harry Truman and the founding of the CIA, the CIA was not initially intended to be anything more than an information service for the president, uh, essentially one page of A4 on both sides with the information, the, the top half dozen things that the president needed to know about that day. Uh, the president, uh, President Truman, uh, Truman was not particularly uh, ver- well-versed on international affairs and found the new world in which he uh, came to office in 1945 quite uh, a challenging one and needed a way of inform- keeping himself informed. By the late 1940s, various uh, figures within the new intelligence community of America were envisaging something a lot more ambitious and envisaging an organisation that had the possibility to fight a uh, guerrilla war against communism around the world. And there were within the new CIA um, figures such as Bill Donovan who, from the OSS and Frank Weisner, who we're going to talk about extensively in a moment, 
these people were passionate anti-communists, uh, anti-communist idealists, really, who saw America's role now in the post-war world as one of being uh, directly combative towards communism and that there was now a, a crusade against communism to be fought. This isn't quite how Truman saw things. Frank Wisner is one of the most important OSS agents in Europe. He had formed friendships with uh, King Michael of Romania and had uh, been posted to uh, Turkey during the war where there had been talk of attempting to bring the Turks into the war against Germany. He was one of the first uh, agents in Europe to, uh, even from as early as 1944, to report back that the communists were going to attempt a takeover of Eastern Europe. Um, he was quite disappointed with the response he got, firstly from Roosevelt and then from Truman. Truman becomes a convert, really slightly later on, to the anti-communist cause, recognising that the authority of the United States is is, was being directly challenged from late 1945 onwards, but certainly doing something about the attempted takeover of um, the Eastern Europe and the uh, development of satellite states there. Perhaps it would have been beyond America's means anyway. Weisner was uh, part of an informal set called the Georgetown Club, um, a grouping of OSS agents, uh, diplomats, journalists and public intellectuals. These were people who um, had met on an informal basis before the war in um, Washington, and they had uh, it featured some quite influential figures, um, who would later include people such as Alan Dulles, James Angleton, uh, later uh, director of the CIA, um, Avril Harriman, um, and other you know significant luminaries such as Dean Acheson and George Kennan. The, the Georgetown set, or the Georgetown Club, were men who shared broadly socially liberal views on uh, domestic matters within uh, the USA. They tended to rather uh, cringe at um, the Jim Crow laws in the South and believe in uh, a more uh, pluralistic and uh, liberal society. They were Democrats by instinct at home, but anti-communist hawks uh, overseas um, and they uh, were you know, between the kind of the right end of the Democrats and the left end of the uh, Republicans. Sally Reston, one of the wives of uh, one of the uh, members of the club, said, we were liberal anti-communist intellectuals, precisely the class and breed that Joe McCarthy hated and whose careers he wanted to ruin. It was the same old battle, the Republican right versus the Democrat left. Frank Weisner and George Kennan, between them, created the Office of Special Projects in 1948. Bear in mind, the OSS had been closed down in large part at the demands of J. Edgar Hoover, who saw it as a rival to the FBI and convinced Truman that it could form some kind of domestic Gestapo in uh, the USA. It's ironic, really, that Hoover made that um, accusation because if there had ever been a politicised police force in the USA that had uh, waged war on political dissidents, he ran it. You know, 
the FBI certainly at times has fitted that bill. The Office of Special Projects was uh, later in 1948 renamed the Office of Policy Coordination and then that was merged into the CIA. The CIA is able to incorporate these uh, different aspects of espionage work and the OPC uh, becomes the paramilitary wing of the CIA. In the early years of the OPC and the CIA in general, you see an immense capacity for uh, imaginative but kind of magical thinking as well. Um, initiatives and plans that aren't really based in any sound coherent logic, but they are they seem ideologically sound and they are a kind of uh, an attempt to try to do something. Often during periods uh, in the Second World War, and this was particularly kind of British uh, trait, but the Americans indulge in it as well. Often there was, uh, amongst uh, Allied forces, particularly before 1943, amongst some of the, the special forces branches particularly, there was a, a culture of, if in doubt, try to do something, try to take the fight to the enemy somehow. It might just work. The problem with the uh, initiatives that were being uh, raised was that men who were recruited by the OPC, uh, by Frank Weisner, um, large numbers of them were sent to their deaths. Um, the recruiting ground for newfound anti-communists was the American sector of occupied Germany, which was filled and was filling with uh, displaced peoples and refugees, many of whom were fleeing communism. It was hoped that among the anti-communist exiles, uh, Germans, Poles, um, Baltic uh, states, Hungarians, Romanians and the, the various diaspora of Eastern Europe would be the core of some new uh, force to fight back against communism. Um, a, a reserve for a possible war emergency, as Weisner put it. The problem was that the, the exiles, the men and women, um, were split culturally, nationally, linguistically and politically between uh, monarchists, uh, republicans, nationalists, fascists, social democrats and others and getting a, a disparate group of uh, people angry and resentful and bitter against communism to work together was uh, very difficult and to form into some kind of a cohesive unit was nigh on impossible. Uh, Weisner wanted to uh, equip them with uh, guns and as much money as they, they needed um, to finance themselves. Um, he wanted to train them in espionage and really have them uh, return to their home countries to be uh, an army in waiting or a, a guerrilla force in waiting. Now, this is all fanciful stuff and uh, largely uh, naive as to the facts of Soviet occupation. You need to have a look at places such as Ukraine and how Ukraine was pacified at the end of the Second World War and how uh, guerrilla fighters against the Soviets were violently crushed or the, the Baltic states to see that there was going to be virtually no chance that the Soviets would tolerate or brook 
any kind of fifth columnist force on their territory. Which is why I made the point earlier on about there being this degree of magical thinking in early CIA operations. Um, the uh, chiefs of the CIA were very reluctant um, to allow uh, Weissner or any of the other OPC men to go ahead with this scheme. Um, he faced a huge difficulty, a huge obstacle in 1949, which was really the fact that the agency had no legal authority to carry out these kinds of covert actions against any country. Once a war is being declared, there is a kind of a legal certainty that all branches of the armed services can go ahead and do whatever the president orders them, um, or to uh, act in the field as they uh, see operationally fit, within obviously certain parameters. Um, but during peacetime, um, peace in inverted commas obviously, but during the Cold War, where war had not been declared against, say, Czechoslovakia or Hungary, or let alone the Soviet Union, the legal remit of uh, secret agents to do uh, intelligence gathering is tightly, uh, tightly monitored, but the legal remit of proxies of the United States to wage some kind of armed insurrection against what ultimately has become a sovereign state, um, somewhere such as, say, East Germany, uh, is incredibly dubious, incredibly legally questionable. The CIA had no charter from um, Congress and no funds that were legally authorised for any of um, these, these probably early kind of what you would call black operations. And so the CIA act was acting illegally beyond the bounds of United States law. And to place this in context, America in the run-up to the Second World War had had, in the guise of the Neutrality Acts, had had stringent controls on what it is private American citizens could do and couldn't do, the business deals they could and couldn't make, that might potentially drag the entire country into global conflict. The CIA... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
His first director, Roscoe Hillencoater, um, paid a visit in February 1949 to Carl Vinson, who was a Democrat on the chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Hillencoater basically said to Vinson that Congress would have to pass formal legislation that gave the CIA the budget that it wanted and it needed to do it as soon as possible. Um, the agency had, was running all sorts of operations without legal funding and it needed to have the uh, retrospective legal cover that could be only uh, granted by Congress. The problem was, of course, that the CIA was unwilling to explain to Congress what it needed money for. Vincent said, we will just have to tell the House, they will have to accept our judgement, and we cannot answer a great many questions that might be asked. In part, the reason for this was the extremely controversial nature of the missions that were being run and were being devised by Frank Reisner. In uh, May 1949, the CIA Act was passed, and this gave uh, the CIA uh, enormous powers, powers which were only prohibited from being used within the United States itself, um, so that the prediction or the fear uh, that was put forth by uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, that there might be uh, an American Gestapo emerge uh, was not possible. But how the CIA was uh, allowed to act overseas was an entirely different matter. For this, there was basically no oversight. The Armed Services Subcommittee of Congress would approve an annual budget. Uh, would, the budget itself would be a secret for the CIA each year. One of the CIA's many powers was to have a wish list of a hundred overseas nationals who could come to be resettled in the USA every single year and effectively be given a permanent residence without regard to their inadmissibility under the immigration or any other laws. Meaning that the normally strict uh, policies on uh, political and uh, ideological extremists being sifted out uh, from entering the United States. You can still, uh, on a flight to America, fill in a, a green card with all these sorts of um, curious questions about if you've ever been in a member of the SS or anything like that. These didn't apply to the chosen few that were uh, introduced into America by the CIA. As I said at the start of the podcast, uh, the CIA's policy of uh, the enemy of one's enemy is one's friend meant that the CIA would now start to find common cause with uh, nationalist extremists, uh, fascists, and those who up until recently the United States would have considered enemies. On the day that the CIA Act was signed into law, um, a Ukrainian nationalist extremist, Mykola Lebed, um, who was uh, quoted as rendering valuable assistance to the agency in Europe, um, was smuggled into America. Lebed, for example, had um, assassinated the Polish interior minister in 1936 and escaped when Germany attacked Poland three years later. He was an ally of the Nazis, as many Ukrainians turned out to be, and he was an SS volunteer for the Nazis. 
he formed in um, two battalions of troops that fought in the Carpathian Mountains for the Germans against the Red Army. And at the end of the war, he fought uh, a long guerrilla war uh, in the Ukraine against the Soviets. This war went on until about 1948 and was obviously eventually crushed by the, uh, by the Soviet Union. Um, Ukrainian partisans managed to take time out also to fight the Poles over a territory between Ukraine and Poland uh, as well. And obviously the profound hatred of the Red Army um, went all, uh, way, way back to not just Stalin's famine, but the famines brought about by war communism um, and the uh, various horrors perpetrated on Ukraine during the uh, Civil War and Stalinist period. Lebed found his way to uh, Munich, where he set himself up as an unofficial foreign minister for Ukraine, which really meant that he was a recruiter of partisans and a contact with the CIA. In Ukraine, there were still large numbers of partisans who could be mobilised at Lebed's um, order, and when money changed hands, when the CIA paid him, uh, he ensured that this happened. Even though the US Justice Department uh, declared that Lebed was a war criminal um, who had participated in the Holocaust, who had murdered Jews, Poles and Ukrainians, um, and there were attempts to deport him uh, when he wound up on American soil. And these were sabotaged by Alan Dulles, uh, later head of the CIA, who said that um, he was of inestimable value to the agency um, and they were, he was in charge of operations of the first importance. The CIA has few methods of collecting intelligence on the Soviet Union, and felt compelled to exploit every opportunity, however slim the possibility of, su su slim the possibility of success or unsavoury the agent. This is an extract from the secret CIA history uh, of the, what is dubbed as the Ukrainian operation. Emigre groups, even those with dubious pasts, were often the only alternative to doing nothing. Um, some, uh, so sometimes uh, brutal war, the, uh, the brutal war record of many emigre groups became blurred as they became more critical to the CIA. So the problem here um, was that ultimately there was, in this period of stalemate in the, in the Cold War, very little that could be done. Um, the effects of the efforts of Lebed uh, and his partisans in the Ukraine were pretty minimal. Um, there was very, you know, it has virtually no effect on the Soviet Union. The intelligence that they pass on is of a very low grade. Uh, and yet there were figures within the CAA, like Weisner, who believed that doing anything was better than doing nothing. One of the problems here is that men like Weisner were uh, committed to covert action. They believed in it. It was an article of faith for them. Much as the uh, Special Operations Executive uh, in Great Britain during the Second World War saw it as vital wartime activities, where much of what the SOE did was counterproductive, it sacrificed large numbers of lives, and uh, it, it brought back a relatively low grade of uh, operational success or useful intelligence. 
Not to say that the SOE didn't have some successes, they certainly did. The thinking problem that fuels a lot of this, uh, I think, is the idea that after a series of high-profile failures, that one needs to simply keep going until one reaches successes, that one must uh, absorb losses, particularly of lives, um, and uh, absorb uh, mission failures, uh, and up until a point where finally a success manages to justify all the sacrifices. This is ripe territory for exploitation. There were a number of former intelligence men, former German Abwehrmen, um, particularly uh, General Reinhard Galen uh, um, of the uh, Abwehr, who approached the CIA and said, essentially, I have a network of uh, German-speaking men behind enemy lines. Uh, it's our tradition, it is our duty to fight um, for Western civilization, and we're ready to join with you. And to uh, what Galen did was to speak to the hopes of the CIA. In Munich and in Frankfurt, um, there were, and in Berlin, uh, there was pretty much every kind of emigre uh, community that you can imagine. And the CIA, with fairly green um, agents turning up with an almost unlimited budget, was music to the ears of men who had lost everything and who wished to regain some kind of status and have a flow of income and to get back to the, uh, the, the enjoyable fun that they had engaged in previously of intelligence work. And they saw the Americans as a vehicle to, to do that. Uh, they saw them as naive uh, with open wallets. The, uh, the counterparts who had wound up on the other side of the Iron Curtain had very quickly realised that uh, the Soviet system was where their futures lay, whether they liked it or not, and it was best to very quickly cooperate with that. The uh, Stasi was, was quickly assembled in the post-war years from the remnants of various German Gestapo units. And the idea that covert operations behind enemy lines were possible and were likely to work out was a, a quite an easy sell to um, American agents who were in uh, Munich and Frankfurt and other um, parts of the American area of occupation for the first time. CIA agents in the field, because there was no direct oversight from Congress, no presidential oversight, and often because the CIA seemed to operate in a kind of an air of informality and chaos, got to devise their own policies and procedures. For example, one agent in Munich, as a young man, Steve Tanner, uh, one of the first 200 CIA agents to uh, graduate, uh, said that um, in order to receive CIA support, the emigres had to be founded on native soil, so they had to have... Uh, originally founded a uh, paramilitary or partisan unit in Ukraine or behind the Iron Curtain somewhere. They couldn't have been emigres who simply turned up in um, American-occupied Germany and announced themselves as freedom fighters. And it was exactly these kinds of characters that the CIA sent to the deaths in large numbers uh, parachuting them in in various ill-conceived operations behind enemy lines 
uh, where they were quickly captured and executed. And if you read Philip Knightley's biography of Kim Philby, uh, the uh, British Soviet double agent, it becomes quickly clear that he was responsible for blowing an awful lot of these men's covers. Though he said in an interview with Knightley in Moscow, these were not nice men. You know, these were not um, noble guys. These were violent, savage killers who had come, been parachuted into the Soviet Union to do extremely brutal things, which uh, may well be the case. Anyway, I'm going to finish that there. I'm going to continue with this theme uh, in the next few uh, weeks or so because it is great to delve into intelligence history. Um, thanks, everybody, for uh, recent support in a, a number of little initiatives I've been doing. I have some great feedback uh, recently, some really interesting conversations that are going to come into light on the economic history, which we'll be pursuing soon. And uh, if you can give us a thumbs up on the iTunes page, that would be great. Or even if you check out our Patreon page, any contribution would be gratefully received. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.